Wonderful. Okay, if you have your Bible with you, would you like to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 in a moment. I'll begin reading from verse 26. So that's Mark 14, verse 26. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, don't worry. You can follow on the screen behind me on the wall there uh, the scripture references that we look at in particular. And I will... I understand the blue bucket, so it's still going round. And I will... uh, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to begin reading the passage. Here we go. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, Before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the others said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go, here comes my betrayer. Our goal in looking at Mark's gospel, our reason in particular for returning uh, to Mark's gospel in our preaching series some time ago, uh, looking at uh, chapters 11 onwards, our goal is neatly summed up in five words written by Paul to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said, I want to know Christ. There are many things that we might like to know, good things. I want to know, I want to know miracles. I want to know healing. I want to know the supernatural. 
I want to know the power of God at work in a community of people filled with the Spirit in a city seeing the gospel uh, extended. I want to know that too. Sometimes, however, we can get distracted by the trappings. I want to know gifts. I want to know the Bible. These are all right and good. But ultimately, I think Paul expressed it best when he said, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. And as we've looked at these chapters in preparing for today, just kind of considered what have we known of Jesus as we've looked at these last few chapters in Mark's Gospel. We've seen that Jesus, what is he like? Jesus is bold. He leads courageously to Jerusalem knowing what awaits him. Jesus is clear. He knows who he is and he knows what the Bible says. So as he's approaching Jerusalem, he instructs the disciples to go and get a young donkey because he knows I'm riding into town on a donkey. Why? Because I am God's chosen king. Jesus is confident. When uh, the religious leaders gather to him as he's been teaching in the temple courts and they bring their difficult questions to him to try and test him and to trick him and to cause trouble for him, he turns it all around. They're the ones who go away scratching their heads with something fresh to consider. Jesus is so clear, he's so confident, he's so calm. How many times by now has he predicted his death? And most, well, quite recently in chapter 14, uh, at a meal at a friend's house, a woman comes and she breaks an alabaster jar of extremely expensive perfume and she anoints Jesus' body. And what does Jesus say? She's done a beautiful thing. She's prepared my body for burial. I mean, what? When would we ever think in those terms? He's completely in control. Grant took us through last week the Lord's Supper and just before or during the meal Jesus says one of you will betray me. Later on he will break bread and he will say this is my body. As we've gone through these chapters I think we can see everything is happening according to God's plan and his timing and so we see Jesus utterly courageous and completely dignified he's our saviour I want to know Christ well we've been getting to know him but we could take a wrong step at this point we could with that impression ask the question well If Jesus is so bold, if Jesus is so clear, if Jesus is so confident, so calm and so in control, so courageous and so dignified, how much did he actually suffer? Did he really suffer? Or was he, in some ways, superhuman? He seems to be taking everything in his stride and in the early church one of the kind of heresies or wrong schools of thought 
about Jesus is that Jesus was fully God, well, that's right, but only seemed to be human. Uh, the, the term for that group of heresies was docetism, from a Greek word meaning to seem, to appear. He looked human, but he wasn't really human. So he's fully God. He didn't really suffer. Not quite in the same way. Maybe he suffered a bit, but only in the, in the way that Superman might have suffered if he got punched in the face. He'd be a little bit affected, but actually not very affected. He looked human. Sometimes he looked daft um, with the costume, but he wasn't really human. What was Superman? Does anybody know? Kryptonian. Awesome, thank you. Um, he wasn't really human. And, and it might seem strange to us, but that was the battle that was happening in the early church. We believe that Jesus is God, but we don't believe he really came in the flesh. Nowadays, it might often be the other way around. Well, we believe that he came in the flesh, we don't really believe he's God. But listen to, to, to uh, 2 John, uh, chapter 7. Just one example, one place we can go to to see this was a real, a real heresy, a real concern. 2 John, verse 7. Did I say chapter? Anyway. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Serious words, but a serious misunderstanding of who Jesus is. What's our goal? In the words of Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. And to know Christ, we need to draw close. On the road to and in the garden of Gethsemane. And as we see there, the man who is fully God is fully man. He wasn't pretending to suffer. He doesn't pretend to understand. He knows because he suffered as a man. Everything he went through, he experienced as a human being would experience. He predicted himself in Mark chapter 8 verse 31 when he first uh, explained to the disciples, he first began to explain uh, what, uh, what lay ahead for him. He said the Son of Man must suffer many things. I want to know Christ means I need to draw close here and see what happened and see what his suffering is like. What did his suffering involve? Firstly, no support, no companionship, no human help. This is what's happening in the garden. He, we've, we heard earlier on that one would betray him. Judas we understand, has now left. He's already somewhere in Jerusalem rounding up the troops to come back and arrest Jesus. He's gone. Jesus predicted it. So it's only 11 disciples that are singing the hymn and going up to the Mount of Olives. And the 11 disciples will desert him. 
Jesus predicts in the words of Zechariah 13, you will all fall away because the shepherd will be struck, the sheep will be scattered. In his darkest hour, his closest friends will abandon him. Now, of course, Peter begs to differ. He doesn't think so much of his friends, but he thinks quite a lot of himself. Even if all fall away, I can see why you think they might. But even if all fall away, I will not. But for Peter, he went one step further than deserting Jesus. As we'll see in the chapters to follow, Peter will disown him. Three times, Peter will deliberately choose to deny that he ever knew Jesus. That's in the future, right here, as they come into the garden. Um, Gethsemane, by the way, means uh, olive press. So it's likely that it was an olive grove or an olive, an orchard of olive trees. Perhaps it had a, a perimeter wall around it. We know the disciples have been there before. They're familiar with this place. We could imagine, therefore, as they'd gone in, Jesus has said to eight of the disciples, you wait here. He then takes the three, Peter, James and John, and goes a little bit further. It's interesting, when in Mark's Gospel has Jesus just taken the three with him? Jairus' house, raising a little girl from the dead, and the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, I want to know Christ. I want to know him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and I want to know him raising the dead. But we need to draw close here as well and know Jesus in the midst of his darkest hour facing his suffering and so he speaks he takes the three a little bit further and then he says you wait here and he goes a stone's throw further on I imagine that he's hoping that even whilst he's not right beside them that when he returns to them later he will find them praying as well they're not going to be able to go through what he's going through but at least to be stood with him but they are Asleep. Notice that from verse 32 onwards, they don't say anything, either in prayer or in comfort to Jesus. And so in Jesus' darkest hour, he will face this suffering completely alone, utterly abandoned, with no human support. In our darkest hour, Were we, or have we been, completely alone? There will be a few people today listening to this message who will have some experience of being utterly alone. But for most of us, there are people who have experienced something similar. There are people who were there at the time, maybe not going through the same thing, but able to support, able to help. Maybe since we have encountered others who have gone through exactly the same thing. I've lost a parent. Or, yeah, I was persecuted. I lost my job. And then it's that sense of togetherness and camaraderie. As you know, you don't have to explain everything to that person. They get it and they get you. Wow, 
other. It's just so helpful. Maybe nobody understands. Maybe no one's been through the same experience. But they still baked a really nice cake. And that was good. But in Jesus' darkest hour, he will be completely alone. No support. How else might we describe Jesus' suffering as having no equal, no match? No one can be having a conversation with Jesus. And when he mentions Gethsemane, we say, me too. We see in the garden, Jesus, the prospect of what he was facing, left him utterly overwhelmed. The three can see and observe he was deeply distressed and troubled in verse 33. He was full of heaviness. They perceive this massive, unimaginable weight has come shattering down on his shoulders. Jesus himself says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Even the prospect of what's to come is so overwhelming, it's enough to almost kill him. Notice then that as he begins to pray in verse 35, he fell to the ground. This is not the typical posture of prayer for a Jewish man. It would be stood up with arms aloft. But at this time, in his darkest hour, he fell to the ground. He refers to his suffering as the hour and the cup. And he's used that phrase before, will you drink the cup that I drink from? Clearly then he's referring to his, his death, which he knows is to come. But we might think, well, what else is in the cup? If we were to understand what Jesus suffered, it must have been more than death, because there are many Christian martyrs and many unbelievers who faced death courageously, without flinching, going into battle, knowing the odds. So there must be more to it. And we could turn to many passages in the Old Testament, and indeed in the New Testament as well, to understand the contents of the cup. The cup of God's wrath. This foaming, spiced, horrific wine that God brings around for Jesus to drain to the dregs. But let's just consider for now um, one verse in Isaiah 53, a passage that foretells the suffering of God's chosen servant. Let's look at for now just verse 6 as we consider what it was that he was facing in the garden. It says there, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Jesus was considering the contents of the cup, he was considering all sin that his death would atone for. What would the cup look like, look like if in liquid form all of your sin had got kind of boiled down to a cup's worth? What would it look like? What would it smell like? What would the dregs be like? 
if it was just my sin. Just. So what would it have been like if all sin he would atone for, he'd kind of reduced down into this one cup that he has to drink to the bitter end? What horrors were there? Uh, Paul describes, Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is going to drink the cup of all iniquity and it's going to overwhelm him and he will, the righteous one, the chosen one, the special one, will therefore become the wretched one, the rejected one, the despised one, the afflicted one, the horrific one from whom men turn their face away. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to go to Gethsemane. Give me glory, Jesus. Give me miracles. Give me resurrection power. I don't want to know the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings. Really. We'd like to edit that part out. But if we want to know Christ... We will come closer. Now, in saying his suffering has no equal, my aim is not to diminish anybody's suffering in this room or anywhere, but to elevate his suffering in our understanding. It has no equal. What else can we say about his suffering? That there is no illustration. Preachers search for everyday illustrations to try to explain a principle. To try to put across the truth they're wanting to teach. Jesus did it frequently, famously, when teaching on the kingdom of God. It's like... A wasteful son who leaves home with half the inheritance... And spends it all. Comes to his senses, goes back home, and finds that he has a father who still loves him and celebrates his return. The kingdom of God is like that. Or the kingdom of God is like a man going out and sowing seed. And the seed goes everywhere. And on good soil, it grows up to produce an incredible crop. It doesn't actually produce an incredible crop everywhere because in some places the heart has got hardened, the ground's got hardened, or uh, thorns are tangling and choking, or the soil is shallow and rocky and it just withers. Now, the kingdom of God is a bit like that. But we can't look at the cup and we can't go to Gethsemane and say, it's a bit like... It's not like anything. We can only wonder. We can only marvel. We can only draw closer and ask the question, what was it like? But surely this is the glory of the gospel. We will never know. For everyone in Christ, I will not even know the contents of my own cup of sin. Let alone the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. 
He's our substitute. He's taken the cup. I don't have to drink it. I don't even have to taste it. If you have experienced a dark night of the soul, perhaps if you're experiencing a time right now of profound despondency and loneliness, it's possible to feel that even in, sometimes especially in a crowded room, then visit Gethsemane, consider Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, see a suffering saviour, our great high priest, who is not, in the words of Hebrews 4.15, unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. We have a suffering saviour who knows, who understands. He doesn't have to use his imagination to wonder at what you have experienced. He gets it. He understands, he sympathizes, he knows. Fourthly, as well as there being no support in the midst of his suffering, no equal to match his suffering, and no illustration to explain his suffering, there was no alternative for his suffering. We can consider Jesus' prayer life so far, even as we've seen it in Mark's Gospel Abba, Father, I've just started a revival with lots of healing power. But where should we be this morning? Should we stay here or should we go somewhere else? The disciples say, let's stay here, let's set up camp. The Father says, move on. Keep preaching in village after village, town after town. Jesus prays to his heavenly Father and gets direction. Jesus goes up a mountainside to pray, Abba, Father, of these followers, who should I call to be with me as my twelve apostles? The answer comes. Jesus appoints the twelve. Other occasions when Jesus has prayed, Father, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Would you enable me now to walk on water so that I can go and meet my disciples who are struggling in the wind? Jesus comes down the mountainside and walks across water to meet his disciples in trouble. Abba, Father, thank you for this bread. Thank you for these two fish. As I give thanks and break it, Would you multiply it to feed these thousands? Thank you, Father. And he dishes it out. See the intimacy that that even in just those snapshots, Jesus has had when praying to his heavenly Father. With that in mind, let's look at what he prays. That if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me yet not what I will but what you will Father in other words if salvation if we can achieve salvation for your people any other way I'll do that notice that he prays the same thing three times 
because he prays, he goes back to his disciples, like he's checking on them. He goes back, finds them asleep, goes and prays again. The very first time he goes and uh, he says to them, Simon, could you not keep watch for one hour? So he's been praying one hour, Father, take this cup from me, and he prays three times. I think that helps us to see that if there had been another way, the Father would have revealed it. And if there had been another way, the, Father, the Son would have taken it. But there was no other way. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Be betrayed into the hand of sinners. Be mocked and cruelly beaten. That is to come. But this is the time when Jesus resolves to do the Father's will. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And it's because Jesus resolved to follow the plan that he and the Father had agreed before the foundation of the world because of what happened here, because he was, became our suffering saviour, obedient even to the point of death, we can read other verses in the Bible by faith, accepting them fully as true, such as Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We take that by faith because Jesus went there by faith. Let's return to our goal in the words of Philippians chapter 3. Well, let's turn there. And reading a few more words than just the initial five in that sentence. Philippians 3 and verse 10. I want to know Christ. That's our goal. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Oh, wouldn't we like to edit that one just a little bit? I want to know Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. I want to know Christ raising the dead and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. If I want to know Christ, I need to draw near here because I will miss so much if I don't. I do want to know miracles. I do want to know healing. I do want to know the supernatural. I do want to know the power of God at work in a spirit-filled church in a city that desperately needs the gospel. But it's not a case of either or pick and choose. A gospel or a saviour to our liking. Resurrection. Well, you only get resurrected if you've died. Jesus died so we we draw near in Gethsemane to the place of suffering to the olive press and we receive great blessing what does it help us to see this is almost a message with no application Um, but I will just offer a few uh, 
suggested avenues. By drawing near to our suffering saviour in the garden, we find forgiveness for our greatest failure. I said one thing and then deliberately, numerous times, I did the opposite. I said, I'll never leave you, full of pride, full of good intentions, full of self-confidence, actually full of failure. But because Jesus went there and, and took the cup, we can receive forgiveness for our greatest failure. We can also receive comfort in our deepest sorrow, where we have been hit by something perhaps completely unexpected, and we're knocked sideways in grief and bereavement, we can know comfort from a saviour who fully understands, who's experienced suffering beyond what we can imagine. We can also find grace to fight the relentless temptation. I don't want to fall asleep, I've fallen asleep. I don't want to fall asleep, I've fallen asleep. I don't want to fall asleep, I've drifted again. And strength to overcome our hardest challenge. I want to know Christ. And look at what we receive. Look at what we gain from his expense. We have a cup of blessing. We have a cup of thanksgiving. We have a cup overflowing with forgiveness. We have a cup of the new covenant in his blood. Because he took the other one. So let's draw near. Let's resolve. I want to know Christ. It's possible for things to become, for well-intentioned believers, for new believers, for old believers. Either a bit jaded or a bit distracted. There's loads of things I want. Overcomplicated. But ultimately, I want to know him. I want to know his resurrection power and his suffering. Amen.